0: Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is the podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode, will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Solvay Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Lisa Tereshko about her paper, The Effects of a Procedure to Decrease Motor Stereotypy." on Social Interactions in a Child with Autism Spectrum Disorder. Lisa is the Vice President of Treatment North Shore for Beacon ABA Services Incorporated and an adjunct professor at Endicott College. Lisa received her bachelor's degree with a major in psychology and a minor in education from Western New England University, a master's degree in applied behavior analysis from Northeastern University, and her doctoral degree in applied behavior analysis at Endicott College under the mentorship of Dr. Mary Jane Weiss. Lisa has over 15 years of experience working with children and adolescents diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and other intellectual and behavioral disorders in schools, residential, and home settings. Her research interests include functional analyses, feeding interventions, and increasing cultural competency in higher education. Lisa has published articles on reduction of stereotypy and self-injurious behavior, video modeling, and feeding. She has presented locally, nationally, and internationally on topics including staff training, discrete trial teaching challenging behavior reduction, increasing feeding behaviors, functional analyses, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. I found this case study to be really fascinating, and I think you're going to find it interesting. I do want to give you a heads up that there were a few connection issues during the recording that you may catch if you, if you listen closely throughout the interview. Nevertheless, it was a really great interview, and I'm excited to share it with you. So without further ado, here's my interview with Lisa Treshko. Hello, Lisa, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to hear about your paper. I think our listenership is going to be especially interested in this topic, being that it seems to be a pretty common practice issue dealing with issues related to stereotypy.
1: Yes, Before, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about it.
0: Of course. Before we jump into hearing about the study, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and sort of what led you to doing this type of work?
1: So currently I work for Beacon Bay Services, which is a home-based early intervention company up in Massachusetts. And so we were working with a child who was doing really well, and we've had him for a few years at that point. And the only thing that was really impeding him from joining the mainstream classroom where he was slotted to go was his high frequency of stereotypy. And so upon discussing the behavior with his mother and the clinical team, we decided this was something that really did need to be targeted. So we brainstormed together to figure out the best approach for him.
0: Nice. And so this particular paper is a a case study of this individual client and and ultimately the treatment you ended up developing to fit his needs. Was this something that you sort of were proactively thinking about, oh, this could be an interesting case study to share? Or were you just going about providing clinical services and ultimately afterward looked at the data and went, hey, Uh, This is pretty neat, and I think other people may want to hear about this.
1: Um, I would say it was a combination of both. So first, it definitely started out as a clinical issue, and that it was a clinical problem that we brought to actually, um, we call it our clinical review team meetings. And so we brought it to that where we all sat and reviewed different cases, determined different treatment plans for different behaviors or problem areas that might be existing with different clients. Um, And so all the BCAs in that meeting we all kind of chatted about where we were at. And so at that point, it was just a clinical problem that we needed to attack. Uh, however, when looking at what we were thinking about doing and I was kind of reflecting back on a previous study that I had done that we used a discrimination stimulus, which we'll get to later, um, I kind of was thinking that that might be an appropriate approach for this child as well. So, when I decided that, that's when I kind of determined, like, wait, if we do this systematically and take a few extra steps, we might be able to turn this clinical case study into a research project as well if it demonstrates to be effective, which it did.
0: When you're in the situation of setting up to approach a case, and, and like you said, you thought, hey, if we kind of go through a couple of extra steps here, this may be clean enough data or or, or strong enough sort of case study to be able to share. What's your motivation behind that? What's the utility in sharing some of these these case studies from your perspective?
1: So I think from my perspective, sharing this information is so critical because everyone does get intimidated by the side of research and, oh, I can never do that. I'm too busy, (laughs) there's no time for that. There's too much going on or I just have to run programs as designed. And so really, I think it was really important to write it up after to disseminate it, that you can just do a systematic procedure with the child. And just with those couple extra steps with like IOA or treatment integrity or social validity, those few extra steps really do help then move it forward to the quality of a research project in a case study.
0: Absolutely. I I love case studies. I love when Java used to do case studies and I love the behavior analysis and practice is doing case studies. And I've personally found as as a clinician when I was primarily doing clinical work, there's so many helpful nuggets of information in case studies, thinking about how people sort of systematically approach a single client attempting to help solve their particular issues. And and I think this particular paper that, that you've published is a really good demonstration of that. I think the, the behavior you targeted, I think, is something that people often see or at least see, you know, a variation of. And the way you systematically went about addressing it, I think, is, is really helpful for clinicians. And so thank you for your work on that. And I think now um, we can sort of segue into it. We've talked around it a little bit, but to jump specifically into it. I found this case study to be especially interesting and I think useful and of interest to our listeners because it's targeting a behavior that I think is very commonly ailing our clients and is something that I I hear a lot of clinicians struggle with, which is related to motor stereotypy. And so we'll dive into your specific definition and and, then the specific type of stereotypy that you were looking at, but can you sort of set us up for this study, can you talk about some of the shortcomings in the, in the previous research that you had read leading into this? And then we'll dive a little bit deeper into the study.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so, stereotypy is definitely a high prevalence behavior that lots of kids on the spectrum do engage in. Um, and it was actually interesting when I was writing the introduction, I was trying to find that prevalence number of how many children actually engage in stereotyping, and it really doesn't seem to have that number out there. Um, very frequently, a lot of studies just refer to high rates of stereotypy or high prevalence of stereotyping. I'm like, well, what is high? Um, so it definitely, that was interesting for me to find out that you really don't know how often it's occurring. And I do think a lot of that is because there's such a variety of stereotypy that does exist. And so it's hard to truly define and measure across the wide spectrum.
0: Yeah, I always find trying to find prevalence data to be challenging. I recently wrote a paper and I was trying to find the prevalence of individuals with autism who are non vocal or at least had severe communication difficulties, and even that information, like we know it's a core symptom of autism, right, Uh, difficulty in communicating, but what is the actual prevalence, and what is the severity? I had uh, a lot of difficulty finding any information like that. Yeah,
1: there's always more research to do. (laughs) That's
0: right, so you were looking at stereotypy in the the prevalence, and so you're saying that it's not is commonly described in terms of the the specific numbers. Yep.
1: Yeah. so then we really went to look at okay well what is it, a lot of times stereotypy is assumed to be automatic functions and as we know in some research um, Dejanira reed did a review article that did look at the different functions of stereotypy, and realized that only about half of the studies did actually utilize functional assessments And it was more just assumed, but then there are other studies as well that show that there are other functions to stereotypy on occasion too. So that really led us down the path of, okay, well, we definitely should make sure that this is an automatic function before we go ahead and intervene because we don't want to inadvertently reinforce the problem behavior. Um, And so that led us down looking at, after completing the functional analysis, and we did confirm, um, looking at some, Different strategies to implement it for automatic behaviors. And it's really tricky. Um, it's really what we discovered because <laughs> a lot of studies just stop there and say, oh, it's automatic. Um, and then you see typically like a DRA implemented or response interruption redirection. But then it's not really a function based treatment. And to truly make it a function based treatment, you really do have to then identify the sensory input of that automatic behavior, which, as we all can imagine, is a very challenging process Um, and so where we kind of were pressed for some time in regards to this child was headed to the mainstream classroom and does participate in different community-based sports and activities the mom really did want this to be addressed so that when he did start in those situations he wouldn't just be automatically signaled as the kid that was different and so we really wanted him to go in fresh and be able to control his stereotype as really during those situations. So we looked at some interventions such as um, antecedent and and reinforcement-based strategies for the most part is where we were going um, and discovered, it's hard because stereotypy, who's to say when you can do it and when you can't do it? We all engage in stereotypy. We all have the little things that we do. We've just all discovered socially appropriate ways uh, to engage in those behaviors such as hair twirling or leg shaking fidgeting with a pen, we all have those behaviors. We just know when it's appropriate to engage in them when it's not. And so that's really what we were looking for for this kiddo. We didn't want to stop the behavior from occurring. It's a part of who he is. It's what he liked to do. If you asked him, he told you he likes it. If you ask him why he's doing it, he said because it feels good. So we don't want to take that away from him either. And so that's when we really started looking at the discriminative. Stimulus and like the stimulus control procedures of how can we teach them when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate to engage in this behavior. Um, And there has been some success in different research articles that use discriminative stimuli to teach that stimulus control of when this stimulus is present, you can engage in that behavior and receive reinforcement. However, when it's not present or vice versa, then do not engage in that behavior. Uh, so that was really the approach that we were looking at there. Uh, so we did look at some different DRA research, the discriminative stimulus and stimulus control research as well. And that's where we started. Uh, and then it was kind of was more of how the uh, procedure progressed and where his progress was that led us down to then go into the self-management side. of it as well.
0: For the approach to this particular case, were you looking at all of this research and, and thinking about things like confirming the automatic function through FBA, even prior to considering to write this up as a case study or were these things that you were doing as sort of extra steps to set this case up to potentially be a, a publishable case study?
1: I would say prior to even thinking about it as a case study, um, as we all know, best practice, you want to confirm the function before you go ahead and intervene. Um, ethically, we're required to do as many assessments that then lead to behavior change programs. So we want to make sure that we're doing that. So, yes, we were first and foremost assessing the behavior anyway um, to then determine where to go from there it's possible that we may have stopped after just the descriptive assessment, but then because we were moving towards publication, we did take it a step further just to confirm what the descriptive assessment was showing.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think that is part of what sets behavior analysis apart, right? We're not gonna look at prevalence data and go, oh, you know, most individuals that engage in stereotypy, it's it's an automatic function. So no point in doing an assessment. We can jump straight to that. I know behavior analysts, Aren't going to take those type of things for granted, and we're going to we're going to investigate that, do assessments, and make sure that we know the particular function. So I love that approach, and I, and I love the setup of of thinking about this particular issue, the type of research you were looking at. I think that's just good clinical problem solving and sort of uh, case preparation. And so I, I, I love the setup of this study. Now to jump into this particular case. Starting with the participant, could you could you tell us a little bit uh, about him?
1: Sure. Um, well, he was a fun little one <laughs> that we all enjoyed. Um, so we're sad to see him go, but obviously it's happy when you discharge due to progress, so we'll allow it. Bittersweet. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and he brought us lots of laughs along the way, so it was worth it. Um, but anyway, he was a five-year-old um, white uh, individual who, was diagnosed with autism, and his family was a middle-class English-speaking family. They lived in a suburb up here in the Boston area where we work, and he was very verbal, (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) He definitely could engage in various manding and tacting and even the disguised demands he was a pro at. Um, And he also had great introverbal behavior. He was able to communicate and converse about various topics, mostly the preferred topics, as children at five years old prefer to do. However, he could engage in conversation on the non preferred topics if you had his attention. Uh, And really, like I mentioned previously, his programming in the ABA home program had, he had. Pretty much mastered where he needed to be for his age. And when we'd gone to his IEP meeting at school, they were saying he was pretty much at great level and minimal assistance was needed except for to redirect his attention. Um, and then upon further probing with them, they did say, well, his attention is usually because he's engaging in <laughs> So we really realized it is impeding his education at school and it did impede at home. That was really the only behavior that we saw across a year that we had him. Um, So we decided it was really about that time that we needed to start working on this to prepare him for that mainstream classroom and all these sporting activities that he was going to be headed towards.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about the specific stereotypy and and how it was disrupting his uh, other more adaptive behaviors?
1: Yes. So he, his motor stereotypy, to put it vaguely, it was handshaking. Um, So he even termed it cheeky. So and if you wanted to know why he was doing it, you used his word shaky and he could tell you all about it. Um, however, it's really the hand flapping at the wrist back and forth was the primary topography of his hand shaking. And so when he engaged in the behavior, a lot of the times he would also be looking at his hands and his body would tense up during it. And so really gaining his attention during that was difficult to do. So it did impede us being able to run various academic trials or even play games every once in a while. We would be out in the driveway playing basketball with him and he's throwing the ball and he's shaking his hands and the ball hits him. And you're like, oh, I'm like, buddy, you got to pay attention. (laughs) Uh, And so really working on him, being able to be aware of his environment was the number one concern.
0: Right. And I imagine that as he's preparing to enter school that you're concerned that he's going to lose out on learning opportunities. And I think in the paper you talked about also maybe the social implications of, of some of that behavior in a typical school setting.
1: Right. Yeah, the social implications were always a concern. And I think that was his parents' number one concern was that he was going to be increasing in all these social opportunities just because he was going to be mainstream and just because he was starting some sports, but if he can't attend to those social opportunities, is he going to even benefit from those exposures? Um, and they really wanted to make sure that he could, so that was where we started targeting the stereotype.
0: Now, in the paper, you 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 describe a, a helpful operational definition of of what how you're defining this specific behavior. And then across the three different phases of the treatment component of this this case study, you sort of approach it or measure it, I suppose, the, the specific target behavior differently. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. Um, so it really depended on the phase of the study and what was going on at that moment. This was again not a study that I planned from start to finish it was kind of evolving as it happened Um, so during the functional analysis that we did we did something a little bit different and we did more of a free operant functional assessment um, based off free operant preference assessments and so it because he has the awareness of his environment and the ability to follow directions we just told him okay on this side of the room you can have us and we will talk to you and we'll play with you or on this side of the room you can be alone and so he was able to choose and go back and forth between the session and we measured where he was during the session and the rate of the stereotypy during that time and so because the stereotypy doesn't really have a definitive start and finish because it can go for five minutes at a time or it can just be a quick 10 seconds at a time. Um, so we really wanted to use that partial interval data collection during that assessment. And then we also continued to use that partial interval collection during that first phase when we taught him the discrimination of uh, when to engage and when not to engage, because it is that ongoing five minutes.
0: And then and then what of the, the later two phases? What were the what were what was the thought process behind the way you were measuring the behavior?
1: So for phase two, we did it a little bit differently because we in phase two, we were working on increasing the duration that he could tolerate the procedure. So phase one, it was just a five minute session and that was it. However, in phase two, the sessions varied in duration. So because the sessions varied in duration, we wanted to measure it a little bit differently and that's why we went into the rate of the behavior instead just so that it was a consistent measure across each of those sessions. Um, and phase three was actually totally different because <laughs> um, that was actually a post-intervention reanalysis of his social interactions. So, stereotypy wasn't necessarily measured on phase three because phase three was re-evaluating phase one and two, but just for a different period.
0: I'm sure when you were doing this study, it was probably a lot to keep track of, the different ways you were measuring the behaviors and what behaviors you're really measuring, but, again, thinking back to sort of clinical work, in a perfect world, you have one measure of like maybe one or at least a limited number of behaviors that you follow from start to finish, and it's super clean and obvious, and not a whole lot to coordinate there. In a (laughs) non-perfect world that we live in, sometimes you have to make adjustments to the measurement depending on the circumstances of this assessment or or the context that you're assessing the behavior in or treating the behavior in. And so I like the way, not only the way that you went about problem solving these sort of situational differences and and how can we adapt our measurement to, to target the same thing but measure it somewhat differently, but in your paper the way you break it down, I really like the this the, the way you write about the different measurements. I thought it was really clean. I've read so many papers, and I'm like, what <laughs> what measurement are you using? Where you seem to have switched somewhere in here, and now you're talking about it differently, it can get a little confusing. So so kudos to you and your team for for breaking that down, and and for the listeners, if you if you end up looking at the manuscript right under the response definitions and inner observer agreement section, very clearly outlines per phase, how, how well, Lisa and her team are, are looking at or measuring the, the behavior.
1: Yeah, I think that was an important piece to make sure it was clear, because like you said, so many articles, you read <laughs> where you're going <laughs> and what you're doing. Um, and this project was a very applied clinical project that then turned into a manuscript. and so really having to break it down into the phases and what was happening in each phase made the most sense for clarity to everyone.
0: Absolutely. Now, we sort of gave a little bit of a preview of the different phases because we're talking about the measurement, yeah. but could, no, we, like- <laughs> could we go back and look at starting with the FBA and the assessments you did? You did what looks like to be three different assessments, setting up the idea or, or identifying what the function is. Could you start there and sort of work your way up?
1: Sure. Um, So first was a Multiple Stimulus Without Replacement, or the MSWO Preference Assessment. Um, To answer your question previously, I would say yes, that was done because we knew we were headed down a research route. (laughs) Uh, Because just watching the child engage with different items, I was pretty confident I knew what his high preferred item was. However, just to confirm that assumption, uh, we did do the MSWO as well. Um, So that we took place first and that was really just to determine the items to use during the training and then also other items to use when we started doing some generalization probes as well. Uh, so we wanted to make sure it varied across preference as well.
0: And why did you select the MSWL? Is it just the most efficient sort of assessment type for you?
1: Yeah we did it for efficiency. Um, like I mentioned before this was a pretty high functioning kiddo he was able to scan the array easily. He was able to accept the fact that he already selected something and now it was gone. Um, so he really took to the assessment. Fine, he actually enjoyed it. Um, he thought it was a fun game, and he's like, "Can we do that again?" I'm like, "No, <laughs> not anymore." <laughs> I know, I know what you want. I got it. Um, but it really was for the efficiency of it because it was primarily for the research, just to confirm the hypothesis that we already had of what his preferred and more moderately preferred items
0: were. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, and then moving forward, we did uh, collect some descriptive assessment data. We at Beacon have our own little form that we use, and it really is similar to the EBC form, but really just focusing on the C or the consequence. And so it focuses more systematically on a typical structured ABC form, but just the consequence. So really looking at, okay, was attention delivered? Was it vocal or was it physical? How long did it occur? Those kind of specifics to the consequences. Uh, And so after analyzing the data from that, we did discover an attention or a sensory function that may be there. And like I said before, since we were thinking this could become something more, we did take the next step to confirm the function instead of just leaving it as is. And also because if we were going to do anything with reinforcement base, we don't want to inadvertently reinforce that behavior if there is that attention component. So really wanted to dive a little deeper into confirming which one it was. So we did, like I briefly mentioned, a free operant modified preference assessment for the function. And that's really where we split the room in half and told him, "Okay, go sit on your bed if you want to hang out with us, or go sit on the sit at the table. he had a little table and chairs in the bedroom. Um, go sit over there if you want to play by yourself." And then we automatically rotated between the two locations. So sometimes the table was alone, sometimes it was us, and randomized that across all the sessions. And then he was free to move back and forth throughout the sessions if he wanted. However, we discovered quickly. That every single time he chose to be by himself and did not want to interact with us, uh, except for once, and we got really excited that he chose the side with the attention. And then as soon as we started talking to him, he goes, Oh, wrong one. And he jumped over to the other side. Um, so that was pretty priceless.
0: Nice.
1: Uh, yeah, so that kind of confirmed. We're like, Okay, we got excited, but never mind. We'll hang out by ourselves. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So it was pretty interesting to see, but also, we not only did we record what side he was on, he also recorded the frequency of those of the stereotype. And for the most part, he still engaged in that stereotype. That's awesome. A couple sessions he didn't, but that we also looked at further, and he was playing the sheets on his bed instead. (laughs) Competing stimuli is welcome to the applied setting. You can't control everything. Um, (laughs)
0: Nice. Did you? have any particular reason why you went with, the, with the, the free operant preference assessment methodology rather than potentially like a, a functional analysis?
1: So we, we're in the home setting. In the home setting, there's a lot of uncontrollable variables. Like I mentioned the bed sheet and that's what you decided to play with. So really looking at your standard analog functional analysis would have been very difficult because there's no way we could have cleared out the room for him. Also, the family had a, again, they live outside of Boston, so it's a very tiny apartments that we work in. Uh, they share the space with the other siblings, so it's very difficult to control all the variables in the environment. And so, upon looking at those other even modified, like I have since done some research with the trial based FA and Holmes and with success. However, uh, at that time, we, really knew that there probably would have been too many trials to throw away at that point because there's so many competing variables that occur between his grandfather coming in and talking to us from brother coming in and talking to us because he was little um, it just happens <laughs> home environments you really can't control everything
0: that makes uh, a lot of sense and yeah, so that's rare
1: we went with a free operant
0: yeah and i, I like the the assessment procedures for the free operant. I've heard them described or read them described as concurrent operants assessment as well. So for the listeners out there, I think there are sort of, from what I can tell, two different camps of people in the way that they talk about them. Very, very similar assessment, one being the the free operant preference assessment, and then another group talking about it as a concurrent operants assessment. Very, very similar procedures, ultimately getting you very similar information. So, um, Yeah, interesting adaptation, easy way to adapt a functional assessment within a very busy and I'm sure complicated home situation. So once you had confirmed through the assessment that it is, in fact, automatic reinforcement maintained, you went into your procedures or your treatment procedures, starting with phase one. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yep, absolutely. So... We did an ABAB reversal design during phase one, so we started with baseline, and during baseline sessions, which were five minutes, just like treatment, they consisted of him engaging with leisure activity of his choosing, and we told his family, like, just do what you normally do, um, feel free to talk to him, don't talk to him, whatever. Um, so we did it across a bunch of different activities during baseline. We did some activities with us. Some just, he was on a break in the other room. Um, he was having a snack at one point. So there was a bunch of different activities going on. as people talked to him, people didn't talk to him. And it was really just your, whatever happened every day. But then for treatment, that's when we did again, five minute sessions. And that's when we started that discrimination training. So we introduced an external stimuli, which for him was uh, it was a bracelet, uh, but it was like one of those rubber live strong bracelets,
0: uh, but it was a Bruins
1: bracelet. He was a big Bruins fan, so we got very excited to wear this cool new bracelet. So that was a positive thing. <laughs> and so we presented on a piece of paper to him that we just quickly sketched out, hands down, no shaking equals access to his iPad. And so we just told him, okay, when your bracelet's on, no shaking equals iPad. And so, Once we showed him the rule, we started the timer, put the bracelet on him, and as soon as he demonstrated the calm hands, which he pretty much did immediately, because he really wanted that iPad, so he quickly put his hands right on the table and said, see, I'm not shaking. Um, And so we waited for him to keep those calm hands for 15 seconds, and then presented him, nice job, here's your iPad. And as long as he maintained calm hands while engaging with the iPad, then he maintained access to it. However, if he did stop the engagement of calm hands we removed the ipad until again he had that 15 seconds of calm hands and then he was able to get access to it again
0: for the the external stimulus right you you talked about wanting to set up stimulus control why a why a bracelet why not another type of external stimulus
1: so really we wanted it to be something that he could wear but wasn't stigmatizing uh because again our ultimate goal was that he could go out into the community so a colored card on the table wasn't going to be effective we're not going to have a table all the time right so we wanted it to be something that he could wear and see so that he could then know this is an effect
0: that makes sense it seems like of all the type of external stimuli you can add something that he's got especially on his wrist was he wearing the the bracelet on the hand that he used for, for hand flapping?
1: Yes, because he used both hands typically, so.
0: Okay, so it's also, I mean, probably pretty, not only is it sort of typically salient, but it seems like it could be especially salient given the, the particular behavior. Yeah. In the treatment phase, you said, if he went at the beginning of the, of the intervention if he went was it 15 seconds he would get access to the ipad and am i understanding this correctly he would actually hold on to access to the ipad the entire time as long as no hand flapping or motor stereotypy was occurring
1: correct yep
0: and then if he did engage in the motor stereotypy the ipad was removed correct and then how long was it removed for
1: um, until he showed 15 seconds of the calm hands again so it wasn't dependent on the fact that it was removed, it was more dependent on how he earns it back.
0: So yeah. upon
1: that behavior of calm hands being readmitted that's when the iPad went back to reinforce the calm hands versus that.
0: That makes sense when I was reading the paper. I started kind of debating with myself or kind of thinking about and I'm, I'm curious as to if you guys have this conversation I can tell via your smile and your head shake I suspect <laughs> yes that is is it technically contingent reinforcement that we're seeing or is there a component of timeout involved with this?
1: We absolutely had that conversation and I think it goes back to I mean we did highlight the calm hands for him and that's why we're like okay well we told him keep your hands on the table and then you get your iPad. So we're going to stick to the theory that we are reinforcing his calm hands. Uh, However, we had that whole debate of not to go down a rabbit hole, but of like a typical DRO. Well, is that reinforcing or is it actually punishing? Which way is the DRO really going? Uh, So we definitely had that conversation amongst us. And then finally took the route of the DRA because of that rule that we had on his chart of the hands drawn down, the no shaking, the hands were down, um, equals the iPad, that, that we were actually reinforcing that appropriate the hands down behavior.
0: And I think that that makes a lot of sense, especially considering his, his verbal level seemed to be high enough. It sounds like he was able to understand at the very least some basic rules. And of course, we're gonna see a lot more of that in in the later phase here. But given that you can kind of explain the rule, if you do this, you get this, it seems like, I think it's obviously debatable as to what was truly controlling the behavior. But I think there's a lot of evidence suggesting that it was in fact a reinforcement contingency. I agree. And then you did generalization uh, at the Mm -hmm. end of phase one. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, we actually did it throughout the phase. So we didn't wait till he quote unquote mastered the phase. We kind of integrated it throughout because we knew ultimately our goal was not just to be sitting at his little table in his bedroom and making it so that he could stop stereotyping stereotypy for five minutes with the that. The ultimate goal was to go further. So we really wanted to make sure the generalization was really occurring throughout the study. And so we started small and just did this uh, generalization within the room. So we weren't sitting at the table, we're sitting on the floor, the bed, and that's pretty much the only space in the room. Um, So then we started slowly shifting to out in the other rooms of the house, and then also those people that were present. So his other family, his mother and father, then sat with him during the sessions as well. So really, really tried to focus gradually building to the parents in the other
0: Was there any particular reason that you wanted to include generalization probes throughout rather than train it and then push generalization afterward?
1: Um, Ultimately it was came down to we were in applied setting (laughs) Um, and so at first the very first day that we had to do generalization is because the brother refused to leave the table (laughs) and so the brother occupied our space so we decided, okay, let's try it on the floor. <laughs> we'll start generalization now. Um, so that actually is how it started. It was an applied situation and that's just natural to the home. And I think it's important to keep that in mind, whether it's clinically or as research, that it's okay to do things a little bit differently and that things can work out even if you're not sticking hundred percent to this is the plan, this is what I have to do. Things aren't black and white, especially in a whole environment where things are out of your Absolutely. So really going with what was happening, was where we started with generalization, We're like, well, this could work, and we <laughs> kept writing it.
0: <laughs> well, and I think that's also sort of channeling teaching loosely, which mm-hmm. is utilizing other stimuli other than from your contrived training context into incorporating them into the training so that ultimately generalization is more likely, and so I think that's a really good example of it. And, it's, and uh, in many ways, the doing the work you did in the home setting really forced you to do that, which I think hopefully is going to be better for long-term outcomes for the client. Right. right. After you concluded phase one, and we'll jump, we'll circle back to phase one and talk about specific effect that you saw um, after this. But can we talk about phase Two and the procedures you use there.
1: Absolutely. Um, so phase two was actually kind of an exciting part because I feel like after phase one, that's where a lot of studies stop. And that's great that we got control of his stereotypy and he demonstrated that he can control when to engage and when not to engage. However, five minutes in his day isn't gonna make a applied difference in his life. So upon talking with his family a little bit more, and brainstorming as a clinical team we really decided to go the route of self-management. Um, we wanted him to, to also have the control for him to apply the intervention on his own and give him a little bit of more ownership to his own behavior. So we did start with a self-management program and again he's five so it did involve a token system and For each interval of the token system, he had three tokens, one for setting his timer, one for stopping in the timer, and then one for if he did not engage in stereotypy. And then after all the intervals were filled on his token board, he got five minutes of his iPad absent of the very slip. Um, And so there was five intervals on his token board and the duration of each interval was systematically increased throughout the study. We started with just one minute intervals per each interval because he had demonstrated the five minutes he could handle already at phase one because those were five minute sessions. And so we figured one minute per interval would equal five minute duration and would take it from there. What was interesting is that we actually found out that he really liked his tokens and had a hard time choosing between which token to put on the token board Um, and took a while to choose. I remember with one of my co-authors, we'd be sitting there, and we're like, "Should we speed him up, or should we let this happen? Like, should we maybe change the tokens to something plain?" But then we realized, "Well, this is okay because really, he's in control of what token he wants, and he's also not engaging in stereotypy for even longer under his own control. If he wanted to go faster, he could and end the session. But he's enjoying this time, so we decided." this is great. And it's actually extending it past the five minutes. So a win for both of us.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. You specified at the beginning of describing phase two, that you utilize not only the iPad as a reinforcer, but also access to non-bracelet time, which is really access to the the motor stereotypy. Was that also used as motor stereotypy, access to motor stereotypy used in phase one as a reinforcer as well?
1: Not directly. Um, I mean, at the end of the session, yes, the bracelet was removed. So I can't say confirming that yes, he immediately engaged in the behavior upon the removal. So he was reinforced for keeping it on and keeping calm hands because uh, we don't have the data on that. Unfortunately, the session ended and we stopped data collection. However, anecdotally, I would say most likely, yes, it functioned as a reinforcer for the end of the session as well during phase one.
0: Gotcha. And for phase two, you sort of just officially incorporated it, which makes sense. Could you tell us a little bit about why you thought that utilizing his own motor stereotypy or giving him access to his own motor stereotypy would be uh, an appropriate reinforcer?
1: Sure. So there is research out there uh, that does look at just exactly that using the re using the stereotypy as the reinforcer and that access to it. Um, However, for him, it was more anecdotal that we just observed that upon removing of the bracelet, he got happy <laughs> and he was like, yay, <laughs> to, I can do shaky, shaky now. Um, and so we really did notice that rebound as soon as the bracelet was removed. And So we were realizing that he was automatically reinforcing himself, whether or not we controlled it or not. Um, so that's why we really decided to take the bracelet off of him and the session was over. So we did want it to escape the contingency of the bracelet at that
0: time. Right. And at the beginning of the interview, when we are sort of going over introduction materials, you also talked about there's really no social validity in completely wiping out motor stereotypy. It may be a preferred activity for the client. And as long as it's not disrupting their life in any negative way, it's perfectly fine for them to be able to engage in those behaviors. And so... You know, when I read these, these types of interventions where you're, you're training someone essentially when and when not to engage in the behavior, right? You're helping them avoid the behavior when it's going to be disruptive and have negative side effects for them. Utilizing the time where they can do it, I think helps train them ultimately. Yeah, I can, you know, when when I'm at my desk and I'm in school and I'm doing my assignment, Depending on the assignment, I probably shouldn't be engaging in motor stereotypy, but during this other time, it may be perfectly acceptable, and and I should be able to engage in that behavior.
1: Exactly, and that's really what we wanted to do for him. We didn't want to completely eliminate the behavior. We want him to be able to engage in something that he likes, just like we all do, but we really just wanted to teach him when it would be appropriate and when it wouldn't be appropriate. So if he wants to, after a long day at school, go home and go into his room and engage in that behavior, go right ahead. However, when you're out playing in the driveway with kids in the neighborhood, we really want you to try to control it as much as possible.
0: And that makes sense. And I think I think that's an important takeaway for, for the practitioners who are listening, often struggling with automatically maintained behavior. There's a lot of research, including this study now, that show actually creating a schedule of, you know, a uh, time where you should really shouldn't be engaging in that automatically maintained behavior, but allowing it in other circumstances. Clearly, that's not possible for all automatically maintained behavior. We don't want to allow someone to engage in head hitting during certain times or something like that, probably. But for things like motor stereotypy and, and things that are acceptable behaviors, they're not harmful behaviors, if done in the right circumstances. So I thought this case was especially cool because it demonstrated that.
1: I was just gonna say that goes along with why we did use the self-management strategy because we wanted to give him that even more ownership of that behavior. And it was interesting to see that once we started increasing the interval duration to two minutes or three minutes, uh, once we got past four minutes, I decided to break the rules and say, okay, what do you want to set it for? Um, And gave him the option of setting the interval timer himself whatever duration he wanted. And I actually found it interesting that he chose harder levels of difficulty. He didn't say, okay, let's just do it for one minute. He was like, let's go for 10, like for one <laughs> interval, all right. Uh, and so he really enjoyed stepping up to the challenge. He enjoyed challenging himself and trying to get those uh, tokens that way. And he was successful. So it was really interesting to see that, him taking that ownership of his treatment and his reinforcement.
0: That is awesome. What was the longest interval you used during phase two?
1: So phase two also included what we're calling the token fading system. Um, And so at one point we realized when we were in the community with him that the self-management procedure was becoming a little daunting Mm. and that that in itself was now stigmatizing because hmm. typical children don't have token boards at soccer practice. They don't have token boards on the playground. So, and also the timer going off, we chose one that was a little quieter just so it wasn't as interruptive, but then on the playground, you don't necessarily hear the timer um, and we don't wanna be chasing him. It's already stigmatizing that he has a staff member with him. So we're trying to stand back and let the social interactions occur. However, if we're still using the program, we're also stigmatizing them that way. So upon talking with his mother, she actually went out and bought him one of those watches that has a vibrating interval timer within the watch uh, and asked if we thought that would be effective. And so she was thinking that that could just be the timer because he couldn't hear it anymore. And I was like, you know what, let's try it even without the tokens because he was really hating coming over to do the tokens as well. We don't want to inadvertently punish it either. We want (laughs) to let him engage in these behaviors. So... The appropriate ones. <laughs> so <laughs> we did go ahead and we said, all right, you know what? You're going to have your new watch. It's taking place with the bracelet. Every rule that the bracelet had, the watch now has. And it's going to remind you, it's, you're going to feel a little buzz and it's going to remind you that you need to keep your calm hands. Uh, and we went ahead and set the timer for 20 minutes because that's the highest interval that he chose on his own <laughs> during the interval. Uh, And we went out into the community with the watch and he did really well with it. Um, It did generalize very easily. It is an area that needs more systematic study, I would say, because it was, we kind of just went for it because his mom asked if we could. And in the applied setting, you don't really want to say no to your stakeholders if it's something that's reasonable. And this was a reasonable thing to try. So we went ahead and tried it and he did really well with it. being maintained low rates and then he also increases duration even further so upon that phase section of phase two uh, he actually went a full two hours during wearing the watch
0: what more can you ask for i mean that's, <laughs> exactly it's pretty socially significant stuff right there that's that's great
1: i was thrilled but she could take him into the community, he could go to soccer practice, he could play on the playground after soccer practice, and then upon getting back in the car, that's when he typically would ask for to come
0: off. And so so he's wearing the watch, or at least at one point uh, throughout the process, he gets the watch on. So when it vibrates, it's telling him from like this time to later, I'm not too engaged in motor stereotypy. Is that, how, how did that work? We
1: thought it more as just a reminder that the watch was on Oh, okay. Uh, because it was a long duration that it was on for. Uh, originally we thought it like, oh, it's kind of like his original timer. He's putting tokens on. We don't know his covert behavior at, mm. when the watch vibrated, whether he thought, oh, I did a good job nose shaking or I should continue to no shake. I that, we don't know because he didn't vocalize anything overtly. However, it, it to us in observing, it seems more just as that reminder of the procedures in place.
0: Gotcha. And it sounds like sort of the end of phase two, as it becomes more and more naturalistic, and, and you're going for longer and longer intervals, seems like it sort of naturally faded into the phase three. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so phase three was definitely... A post-treatment idea uh, because in watching him engage in social interactions during the treatment from phase one, phase two, and then even with the watch, we really saw that social interaction increase. And anecdotally, we would talk about how like, oh, it's so great. He's socializing so much more. This is fantastic. He's responsive and he's initiating. And then we realized like, well, I wonder if it's actually true or we're just biased because we completed this awesome study. Um, So that's when we decided, let's go back and review those videotapes because luckily we did have the sessions on video. So we were able to go ahead and do that. So for phase three, what we ended up doing was we took the five minute sessions of phase one, and then we did just a 10 minute um, sample at the beginning of phase two, because the sessions became two hours. (laughs) And so we didn't want to have to watch watch the entire thing. We just wanted to know, is this theory correct? Like, did this actually increase the social interaction? So we figured the 10 minute probe at the start of each session was enough to get an idea of whether social interactions increased or not. Um, And so that's how we ran that. And we scored his social initiation. So whether he initiated a comment to us or to another person in the room, because sometimes there was multiple people or other children. And then also we scored, the percentage of responses he had. So anytime that we asked him a question or we made a comment that usually would follow with a response, did he then emit those responses to us and we did percent of opportunity for those.
0: Putting all of the findings together, phases one through three, could you sort of summarize what what you saw across each phase and sort of what your takeaways from those data were?
1: So, What we found in phase one is that he was actually very quickly to discriminate and follow that rule. Um, And then upon return to baseline, he went right back to engaging in the stereotypy if that bracelet was not in place. Uh, And so he was able to really quickly acquire that. For phase two, when we started that self-monitoring procedure, he really caught on quickly to it and he enjoyed the tokens, as I mentioned previously. What we, interestingly enough in this data isn't published in the article, but I do have it, um, is his accuracy in completing it. Sometimes he told us that he did not engage in stereotyping when he had, hmm. um, but overall, even when he quote unquote lied about it, the rates still remained very low. So it was interesting to see that trend that even the accuracy still didn't affect the reduction. We still saw that reduction regardless. And just as an anecdote, he averaged about 80 to 90% accuracy on using the management. So it was overall accurate, but uh, sometimes he did. Uh, so that was phase three. And what we saw, or sorry, phase two. And what we also saw was once we gave him a little bit more control in that varied condition, the duration that he tolerated actually increased. So that goes and supports that control piece that when you have control of your own treatment, you can actually go for. Longer durations.
0: That makes sense. And then
1: he generalized really well.
0: Was there any particular reason that you didn't go back to baseline like you did in in phase one during phase two?
1: Um, Because we did a changing criterion design. So, therefore, there was no reversal needed for that.
0: That makes sense. And then for phase three, what did you see?
1: Um, So, phase three, we also noticed an increase in his social initiations and responses. There's a little more variability for his social responding during phase one. However, it was still elevated above that baseline level. And then once we got to phase two, his responding was much higher, averaging probably closer to like 90 to 100. Uh, And the initiations always had that increasing trend. And then also during phase two, we saw even further increase in phase one
0: yeah, the, the phase two data in particular look outstanding on the graphs yeah. you provided. Really, again, really, really socially significant stuff. With the, yeah. okay. over, with the overall results that you saw, so you saw it work across phase one, phase two, and you see the sort of the social implications across both phases and phase three for a clinician interested in, in replicating this type of work, where should they start? Should they, should they start in a, in a phase one setup or could they potentially jump to phase two? What are your thoughts around that?
1: Um, well, first I would definitely recommend doing the functional assessment um, to make sure that the behavior is an automatic function because that is what this behavior was maintained by. So we wanna make sure that we're not inadvertently reinforcing it inappropriately. Um, Other than that, I would say a phase one was necessary because otherwise, if you just start right away with phase two, then we don't know if it's what's actually causing the change or if he even understands what that bracelet means and the contingency of the bracelet itself. Um, You can probably shorten phase one. Um, We had some hiccups along the way, so we had to extend it. However, uh, I would say you would want to start just to make sure they understand the concept of what this means.
0: In phase two, you talked about the sort of long-term implications of a self-management system versus an interventionist implemented intervention. Could you speak about that again?
1: Yeah, so I think this is, um, was even before this new debate that's going on, actually, with the neurodiversity movement. Um, and I think it's so important that individuals, regardless of their level of impairment, have that choice. And so it was really nice to see that he was able to control and he was able to intervene on his behavior as appropriate. And he was able to then determine, okay, I'm going to do one minute today. I'm, I'm not feeling it or I'm going to do a four minute interval because I'm feeling pretty good. Um, so he was really able to determine that. And then he also provided his reinforcer at the end. So it really gives him that ownership, not only to his own behavior, but also to his control of that intervention, which is so important.
0: Yeah, I think that self-management systems, if the goal of behavior analysis is to create as as much independence and autonomy as possible with our clients, what is really going to be better than that other than something that the client is um, administering themselves and able to implement mostly independently with a little support? Like I was thinking back to your story about the client on the soccer field. If it's interventionist implemented, how does that really work as a, as a therapist running out onto the soccer field and interrupting him and talking with him? That's just not going to translate and, and generalize nearly as well as something that the client can do themselves.
1: It's actually really great because he actually was able to bring the intervention to school. And I know that's always an issue at working in the homes, making sure that it carries over across to the school environment as well. And we never want to give additional things for teachers to do as teachers are so busy anyway. Um, So it was great because he was able to do it himself. And so even checking in with the teacher, how things were going, she's like, he's doing great with it. He wears his watch and he's able to monitor himself and he takes a break when he needs to. Um, And so it was a very successful procedure that he could do across settings and he was able to control.
0: That's great. I think this study in the, this case report is, is so interesting and I think so helpful. Clearly in the study, as you mentioned at the beginning, there's probably some, some pros and there's always pros and cons to working with different verbal functioning levels. In this particular case, Luke seemed to be very highly verbally functioning. Um, do you think that there is information from this study that could be taken to some clients who have less vocal verbal skills?
1: Yeah, I don't know that his vocal behavior was critical, at least for the discrimination phase. Um, yes, we did present a visual. However, many kids that don't have that vocal behavior do respond to more visuals as we know kids on the spectrum and anyone on the spectrum does really learn things visually. So presenting the rule visually for him also could work for children that don't have that vocal behavior. Um, And then it's just a simple discrimination procedure. We didn't really talk to him during it. Um, We were just moving the iPad and he followed the rule. Um, So that visual was there for him to see why the iPad was there or was not there. But it was a simple reinforcement procedure that works for any individual, I would say. Yeah, and I've actually used a watch procedure for a non vocal kiddo before uh, with a different procedure in place. However, the watch discrimination was actually very successful for him and he was a non
0: vocal child as well. So, self management, potentially not, it's going to depend on their skill set, but at the very least, those discriminations u- utilizing something like a watch or a bracelet may be useful.
1: Yeah, I think more research needs to be done on the self-management with a variety of functioning levels. There is some research out there that they have done with profoundly disabled individuals, adults, not children. And they did see an effect with the self-monitoring. They did note though that they're not sure if it was the self-monitoring or just the reinforcer at the end. <laughs> so again, the self-monitoring is a tricky one where piecing apart and doing a true component analysis of what it is that's controlling the behaviors. But they have shown that
0: it has been effective with profoundly disabled adults. It's a good so it research. Yeah, it's a yeah, good research question. Research. Yeah, so Absolutely. if you're looking for a dissertation or a thesis, here you go.
1: <laughs> there you go.
0: Uh, speaking of that, given, given that this was a case study, right, there, there's a lot of limitations to really what you can end up generalizing from this information. What next research studies do you think should be prioritized looking at some of these these components?
1: I just think it's really important to look at the reduction of stereotypy in general because it's a reduction, not a removal. And I think that's important to remember. These procedures can take a long time. So looking at duration of interventions, this did take about a year to implement from start to finish. Um, which is pretty common in stereotypy studies. They definitely go on for longer durations with that automatic function. However, looking to see what the general duration is of how long these take to really determine can we pick apart those components that are the most crucial to then maybe make this treatment be more effective quicker, more efficient. Um, but I also found the study to be really significant in that we were working to reduce one behavior and we saw an increase in another naturally so I thought that was a really fascinating part that we saw the natural occurrence of an increase in socialization yes he already had that behavior in his repertoire so it just naturally started to occur once this other behavior was reduced uh, but I think that was a really key component to the study that looking at well what other behaviors emerge naturally that are appropriate that might then lead to greater reinforcement for these kiddos just by the removal of these interfering
0: I love that. And I and on your graph, as I was reading this study before I even looked at the graph, when I was reading about the increase in socially appropriate behavior, I was worried that the, you, we may see just an increase and then it's going to be difficult to tell if the intervention was really what was affecting it. But because of the way you set up phases one and two, you actually have a little bit of an ABAB design there. So you can see the the difference in the level between baseline and the intervention, and the intervention clearly demonstrates that it is not only decreasing the motor stereotypy, but it's also increasing those appropriate social behaviors, which is really exciting to see.
1: Right, and I think it's really important to point out just that social validity part of that, that we did see an appropriate behavior increase, and that he was able to participate more in conversations with anyone
0: in their environment whether it be a peer or an adult. That's awesome. Circling back to your first consideration for future research, you said, you know, time efficiency is something to consider. If I remember correctly, you did sessions, I think, two times per week. Was that because that was the access you had to the client or was that a a specific clinical decision?
1: Um, that was access to the client and partially clinical too, because we, he, was, he originally did have five days a week sessions. However, because his clinical need for sessions five days a week was reduced. Hmm. Um, so that resulted in him having sessions only two days a week, uh, which then gave us the availability of only two days a week. So a little bit of both.
0: <laughs> I see. Do you think that had you done the intervention with him, had the let's let me word it this way. Do you think that if you had access to him five days a week, that this intervention could have been implemented five days a week, and do you think we would have seen potentially an uh, expediation of the results?
1: I do. Um, I mean, he demonstrated quick responding as it was with just the two days a week. So I do think that if we had access to him more frequently. Like if we were in a center, I could see this definitely being targeted twice a day, five days a week, and he would be moving a lot quicker than he had. Um, That just takes you back to that case study of a home setting and what you can do in a home setting, Uh, but still see effects, which is great.
0: That makes sense. I think one of the things I always struggle with when teaching my students or when I'm doing any clinical work now is striking that balance of you want to get things done as quickly as possible obviously but there is there is sort of trial burnout uh, on the on the participant side there's only so many sessions in a row of a particular lesson that someone is going to withstand in, in many situations and so I guess, you know, we're left wanting more information, but I'm also, I I think it's within the realm of possibility that potentially only two days a week could have worked to your benefit. I guess, again, depending on, on, it sounded like he liked the intervention. So perhaps not, I'm sure he would have leaned into it, you know, five days a week, but perhaps with other people who struggle a little bit more, maybe less days per week could actually be beneficial in, in some situations.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Because I mean, yes, he did like the intervention. I don't know if it was the intervention or just the access to his iPad, because it was isolated just for when we showed up. Um, So his parents were trying to cut back the iPad time. So when we started using it for longer durations, he got really excited. Um, But I mean, it was also hard work for him. So there were some days that he was like, no, I don't want to wear the bracelet today. Um, Like, all right, well, you can take two minutes, and then we're going to try it. You let me know when you're ready. Um, And he's like, Okay, now I'm ready. So we always had that option to do the intervention or not, which I also think is another really important ethical consideration. Um, If we had just put it on like, Oh, too bad. We're doing it. We're here. Um, That would definitely raise a few more red flags in the ethical department. Uh, But if he said he wasn't didn't want to, we did honor that request. and Typically, in a couple of minutes, he was ready to go ahead.
0: Awesome. Are there any other important takeaways or pieces of information we should know about the study?
1: Um, I think we covered most of it. I think it's just a really great way to look at stereotypy and giving the individual the control of their behavior and the control of their intervention. Um, And then also just the implementation of an intervention that worked across so many different settings and different people. And he was really able to do it himself, which was really exciting.
0: I love that. And obviously,
1: the, the collateral increase of social behavior, which
0: is really cool. yeah, I think I think this is a cool case study, in that potentially because you've you leaned into the sort of embracing the 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 participants' autonomy that in many ways you could argue that may be one of the causal factors in the generalization across so many settings because you're really tapping very early into. The the participants control over his own environment and his behavior so really neat study for that reason, and then of course all the other sort of more technical components. For people interested in this type of research, do you have any recommendations for other articles or resources that people could check out.
1: Yeah, um, I would definitely say be patient, <laughs> um, it's definitely <laughs> slow-moving research, um, but I would definitely also say take your time and do the functional assessment. Um, one area that I think is really cool for research is to just starting with those review articles, so De Janeiro Read, like I mentioned before, 24, 2012, sorry, um, did a review of all the different functional assessments for stereotipity, which is very important. And then also Mulligan did another review article, both of which are cited in my um, article as well for all the references, um, did a review article of just stereotypy in general. And I think really moving towards those positive practices of reinforcement-based and scene-based interventions, especially where the control is for the child, is really important.
0: Excellent. We'll make sure to link to those articles in the show notes. This has been a a fascinating interview for me. I really enjoyed talking with you and learning more about this study. So thank you for doing this study and thank you for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a good time.
0: All right, before you take off, remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and suggest recent bad papers that we should review. Links to our social media can be found in our show notes. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervias and Jesse Perrin, and my production assistant for this episode, Beyonce Ferrucci. Finally, as always, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast.